Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from top professionals in the industry. I'm Matt LaPiccolo. I'm your host for today. I focus on shopping centers primarily on the West Coast in California. I've been in the industry now for over 16 years. Today, as our guest and one of our firm's clients, is Tom Alexander. Tom is the West Coast Acquisition Director for BH Properties, a real estate investment company that owns, operates, and repositions value-oriented properties across the country. Tom's been with the company now for five years, has a very private equity, institutional, and high network capital experience. So in this episode, we're going to dive into both the state of the market, certain product types like office and retail, the various nuances that brokers, principals, and investors are using now to identify both strengths and risk. So with that, Tom. Thanks for having me on today. Tom, with your approach to acquiring assets throughout the country, previously to this podcast, you mentioned office products. Mm-hmm. What stands out, I know that's not perceived right now as a strong asset class, but having the recent acquisitions in that product type, what are you paying attention to? What are the nuances that you're looking at to identify strengths or potential weaknesses? Yeah. So it's interesting you brought that one up too, because, you know, BH properties, we focus on, we do all product types through a value add lens, Mm -hmm. primarily Western US focus, but we'll sometimes jump out of that shell too. look at stuff in the East Coast, Southeast as well, Uh, acquired 1100 Lincoln Road in Miami, Mm -hmm. retail center there. So when it comes to office, really what we've seen is what I think it's the obvious news out there, right? The, The distress, the return to office, which is just non-existent right now. I do see some light in certain parts of the country, but one thing I see consistently in every market I cover is that the class A office still holds strength because of the flight quality, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of office across the board just took a major hit when the pandemic hit, even the class A office, right? You saw a big dive in all of them, but generally speaking, a lot of class A office had a big bounce back, right? And a lot of that had to do with that flight to quality. Some people who decided, well, you know, we want to move up in space, whether it was they can get a good deal on a class A office or for the longest time they couldn't penetrate into a building that they want to have space in, they found this an opportunity to get into those buildings. So a lot of them you will see, even markets like San Francisco, while generally speaking as well, it's it's a rough pocket. It does have office buildings, just a small handful that had a quick bounce back and had maintained occupancy. So I think the class A office is an interesting aspect. Outside of that, you know, there's a lot of debate, you know, as to is work from home going to be here forever? Right. When are we going to see this return to office? Are certain markets facing political risk and new tax policies that are making it less inviting for employers to come there or even employees wanting to be there? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that add to the speculation in the future that makes it scary for some. I think also for institutional capital, it's difficult right now to convince your investors that, you know, hey, we're going all in on Portland or Seattle or San Francisco, for example, only because of everything you hear about in the news and the media. But I also noticed that being in these markets weekly, that every time you go there, you do start to see shines of light and momentum picking up. And unfortunately, a lot of the data we have is retrospective, right? Like from a prior course where it's from the Fed all the way down to marketing reports uh, on the retail side, uh, telling you what's going on in these markets. And the reality is, unless you're there on the ground, you're kind of not really up to speed. And some of these high beta markets, which you'll see, particularly on the West Coast, they come back quick. And if you're not there, you probably miss out. Interesting. So in essence, when you say flight to quality, do you think 
the office amenities has an influence for both employers and employees? And what are some of the market drivers that, I guess, secure that flight of quality, especially on the investor side and acquiring an asset in a San Francisco or maybe even a Seattle type marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. Amenities is crucial right now. I think landlords will do whatever it takes to get people back in these offices. And class A office in particular tends to have some of the best amenities, whether it's from you know, I was talking to someone today about this really cool full indoor golf simulators they have in the building. Oh, wow. It's a common area amenity, right? Yeah. All the way to the market, bike racks, real gyms. And when I say real gyms, you know, I think for a long time, landlords got away with just, hey, we'll put a few dumbbells in here and some we, we can check the box. We have a gym. But I think people now are like, no, we want a legit gym that's like actual square footage to it, right? So a lot of amenities help tremendously because... It's already tough for employers to convince people to come back, but if you can do anything that makes it easier, inviting, right. they're going to want to do that. That makes sense. Yeah. And so in, in some of the other drivers and markets too, it's it's not it goes beyond that too, right? There's there's a lot of safety concerns. A lot of employers, we've seen through the pandemic, just outbreaks, not, not just from the medical aspect of what happened, but also the, the crime, right? And the political and favorability for uh, taxes, for example, in certain markets where it's become more burdensome to have your, your business there. And then again, the, the safety for the employees, bringing them back there. They want to see some of that. And some of those amenities can also be some form of security, but that only goes so far when people have to still go to these downtown areas. And it, it even trickles to the retail side, right? There's a lot of retail we can go into later, but it's kind of dependent on that return to office. And until that happens, it's like, you know, they're they're basing a marriage together. They need both of each other. I think one of the comments you made earlier is really important to point out is you, you spoke to about or spoke to me on the ground, knowing the nuances of that specific market as well as that product. I feel that with the change in marketplace that is present, that ground game, if you will, is vital to understanding the nuances of an asset that you just touched on with, whether it's amenities, the safety element, the market generators in and around that area. I feel that now that is becoming part of the, the underwriting approach to assessing long-term viability. So in essence, right, while the headlines may be negative, what are your thoughts on the common saying that buy and bad news? You know, I think there's a lot to be said about that. A lot of groups aren't able to do so, right? That again, like the institutional capital, you know, when they have to, the investors they have to speak to and you, you tell them something like market, for example, where the news is just beating it up. Right. And it could be a great opportunity and there could be a lot of money to be made. And yet if something goes bad, you know, immediately investors are going to go to them and be like, well, of course, why did you go there? Right. right. Because it was actually good investment, but it, it's a hard sell right now. Right. And so once you have those data points, and I think you're going to see that flood of the herd coming in. Otherwise, I think there's groups like ours, BH Properties and others as well, who are a little bit more nimble because we don't have any outside investors. There's not like other groups twist our arm or some way have to adhere. We are, we're capitalized fully internally. Mm -hmm. So we make our own decision process. You know, our investment committee is about three people. I'm one of them. And so we keep less cooks in the kitchen to make yeah. fast decisions and make moves in these markets when there's opportunities that we can. We often are the contrarian because, you know, we, we see through a long-term lens. Again, without outside investors, it's not like you're looking through a five-year fun hold period either, right? Sure. I think that's a tough sell right now to go to investors regardless anywhere for office and a lot of certain other products types too, where it's like, you know, we got to get the same lease up, we got to do capital improvements, and then be able to exit this yeah. at a 
favorable uh, interest rate environment, right? That's that's asking for a, a lot of things that I think a lot of people are not going to achieve, unfortunately, at least in the near term right now. Yeah, no, it's. I guess it's encouraging to hear this. You say the fundamentals of real estate. That's what we in San Diego, especially in our approach with shopping centers, have been focused on: is understanding the real estate fundamentals. How does the real estate lend itself for the specific use, whether it's grocery related? soft goods or fast food in terms of assessing that that tenant's viability so it seems that when we're in this market and we're looking for value right we hear this daily we're looking for value what's the story how much are you drilling down now as we shift to like a retail product and maybe a secondary market where you're at a land cost basis what type of i guess approach do you take and uncovering value. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great question, and there's there's a lot of avenues that you can go. Again, what you can do with that land, like you were talking about, is going to dictate a lot of yeah. directions you're going to go. One thing I always love about retail is that of all main four product types, whether industrial, multifamily, office, or retail, retail to me is always the most valuable in the sense that it is the most valuable dirt. Right? Yes. It's often going to be the main and main location. Um, if for whatever reason, we've seen retail go up and down, right? In different cycles, it, it goes from the most beat up one to now, as you see, it's the new golden child again. When COVID hit, I, I thought that's the nail in the coffin for retail. Right. Yes. We were all kind of like, oh, you know, yeah. you know I just, it's done, right? And just to all our amazement, it shot right back. True. Meanwhile, office was just still struggling. And you think about this last cycle, really, there is a value add product type for every cycle. And in this last cycle called from GFC to now, and maybe even before, it was really retail and office, right? Industrial was really going through its boom and it still is. Multifamily, it was going through boom and they had been as well too. But office and retail are the ones where that's where the value add was. Now it's becoming extremely difficult to find value add retail, right? So what used to be the value retail of leasing up vacant, retail mm -hmm. or what we love to do and we've done for a while too is like let's say big box for example right what right. repositioning a lot of it looks like it, it's you know that's done right because you hear about those tenants in particular right some a lot of these in the news whether it's the the sears of the world kmart's you hear every week it's a new big box but the reality is it's still a fungible asset and whether it's a call center or medical use right because you there's a lot of similarities that will go with the shopping center in a sense that you have great parking ratios for medical office use in these big boxes. Right. You have great drivers. You have something where you can drop off mom, dad, grandpa, whatever. You do some shopping or, or the kids, you know, go do your shopping, whatever, in the mall. And you come and you pick them up and you, you go. Right. So there's a lot of ways, too, with that zoning as well that it and the, the characteristics, again, such as like the parking that lends itself to that especially with call, call centers, right? Office is always looking for amenities in the area, right? And what do you get with a shopping center or a big box? It's typically buy a lot of amenities. And going back to the new value out of retail, it used to be leasing a vacancy. Outside of that, there's other elements too where we see the value add shopping center that, you know, maybe 10 years ago is that we have vacancy in here and you buy it, you can lease it up or you roll to market rents. Nowadays, it's so stabilized and Pretty much soup to nuts at the right. value add is the mixed use story where the value add proposition is utilizing the extra land or you're going to take a shopping center refine it and you're pretty much doing housing above it vertically and a lot of cities are kind of forcing your hand to go that direction too and 
I, I say forcing your hand, but also inviting it too, making right. it easier to make it happen. So that's kind of the new value add too. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the vertical enhancement is one as well too as the city's participation offering incentives that, you know, maybe in the past have been a somewhat of a, uh, a, a challenge for a developer and investor to consider just given the time cost of, you know, creating that value and what that bolt's going to look like. And, you know, as we're looking and identifying value, I don't want to say there has been an inversion to big box, but it's really encouraging to hear you say that, look, we look at big box based on its positioning, which is the dirt, right? And we see that maybe this 40,000 feet space doesn't necessarily need to be a single tenant. And I know there's costs and overruns, and there's a lot that, you know, can erode some of your profitability. But a fundamental point you brought is the location, the location integrity, whether it's a grocer, whether it's a service, whether it's soft goods, the customer is going to utilize that location to some value, whether it's pickup or some type of mini, you know, inflection between industrial retail from a distribution standpoint. So we're seeing the consumer start to change their habits. But one of the values of retail, whether it's a gas station, to fast food, to obviously grocery, is they're conveniently located. That convenience element now, I think, is really going through a, a, a change in terms of how it's impacting the needs of that customer, mm -hmm. right? In-store pickup, we're hearing a lot of, you look at, you know, fast food operators like Starbucks that have the enhancement of the mobile order, you know, accommodate clients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's, again, that, that value of that dirt you see time and time in the cycles of the past i can't tell you how many retail properties I see right now quote unquote retail where you know there's a component upstairs it's office for example right and you wonder yourself like oh geez well you know office is not going to lease right now but you dig in it further and you realize oh wow like before this was office there was actually a, a restaurant up here it had great views and he's like that there was actually a lot of times before it was in retail there were other uses here right before it was retail as well you know in the last couple of cycles and last two, three decades, you could say it's been retail, right? But truth is that dirt where it sits always has a higher and better use. We call it retail right now because that's where they sit, right? They want that visibility, that main main location. But again, I see so many when I look into a property, I dig into the history, I'm like, oh, wow, this has had, this has had multiple lives before that. That's but a really you, good point. And you can't say that about a lot of places. For example, you know, we got the, I guess an obvious one, an extreme, but it's the Inland Empire with the industrial boom. You can't really say there was a lot of other uses other than probably ag uses and, and portions there in the desert, more casinos, right? But right, that's not, a good point. It, it's it's created a first generation stuff, which is industrial. But take a look at that retail, look at the history of them, and you'll you'll see that there's actually been a great history of them. And I think if if you are a retail investor, I think over the long term horizon, despite these damages that occur up and down waves, which happens to every asset client yeah. in different cycles, you're kind of going to be on the top when you look at it through a lens of the quality of that land and there's always a higher and better use. Yeah, I think your conclusion of the quality of the land is so fundamental, but I think often maybe has been overlooked somewhat in the last 10 years, especially when rates were so low. Risk wasn't really factored into the equation. But now I think the important message here is that regardless of the present use, the land has value. And there's some, you know, transformation that happens over, you know, the course of time, whether maybe it's best position for a bank, maybe that bank turns into some other type of use. 
And I think that's really the, the kind of the core tenet of understanding the inherent land value and how it can be, how can it accommodate current trends and, you know, scenarios in which maybe going back to office where and a class A office for the most part will always be a class A type of office. You're not getting to see that use change from maybe apartments or some type of retail component. You have multiple stores involved. So I think the zoning there kind of limits what that asset will be. So you're maybe are more exposed depending on the cycle of the market that you're in. Or yeah, retail does have that ability based on zoning to allow a vertical enhancement or more importantly, just accommodate modern trends mm-hmm. of, of the consumer. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a really important take and that's something too that, you know, we look into more of is just that land value and understanding those fundamentals from an investment stamp. I think too, what's unique too about your group is that your approach is long-term. Given the uncertainty right now of the debt market and the, by that, I mean, I shouldn't say uncertainty. I think it's more about the lack of liquidity right now, just given what happened with SVB and Signature Bank. For groups like yourself, that has a lot of capital available. How much though, does that still, does that influence your decision-making? Do you see that as an advantage where you may not have to go through the lending process where other clients have to, but how are you still factoring that into your decision-making when you look to call it the, the law jam right now in the debt market? You know, it's, it's, I got to say it's, it, for us, it feels great right now. There you go. We're in that position that we're really, we're, we're moving on more deals this Typically in these down cycles, I think groups who are all, are all cash like us have that ability to kind of bypass that need of debt, that necessity, that necessity that a lot of buyers are typically going to need. And, you know, it is uncertainty. Like you were saying earlier, it actually is uncertainty because if you go look at and you are a buyer who's going to require debt to purchase an asset, it's so volatile week to week. You're looking at yeah. spreads over so for just like I'm just an emotional high schooler, right? Just up and down each week, you can't keep up. And then you throw in, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, all mm-hmm. that uncertainty. And then you start talking to these other lenders, regional banks, and they're like, I, I, I'd love to lend on this, but I, I don't know what to do right now, right? Yeah. So for us, it's it's been it's been great and we're, we're still moving. I think for properties that you would have had buyer pool of, I don't know, for example, 10 to 15 people, you're probably down to two or three, right? Just generous we just throw that out there as a number it's a smaller pool we have to compete with which is great but at the same time too i'm sure you're always concerned about the bid ask spread oh gosh yeah for us you know i think when it comes to the bid the buyer side right a lot of that deviation from where the ask is is that debt component right that volatility is really limiting them when it comes to office it's it's slim to none of what you're going to find in debt out there right so when it comes to office you know the few groups that could do it i, I think you know that's why we've been so active in there because a lot of people are going to want to make those contrarian plays, but they can't. It's not just investors, it's the debt like we're talking about. Same with retail. Yeah. Right? Re- retail is, you know, even if there is still liquidity or there's debt out there, it's not favorable terms, let's be honest, right? What you were going to pay for a five or five and a half cap a few years ago, a couple years ago even, you can't just go into a deal underwater, right? At that same rate because you're not going to get that rate from the lender. Right. So be able to bypass that. You also have to have a plan that obviously the market's not going to bear that same cap rate, but at the same time, you have to have another plan too to get creative with this asset too to really juice those returns, which 
we always want to do, right, for retailer and product type when you're buying value add, but it's especially important now and basis, right? We've always been a basis buyer, mm. and I could say the importance of that, and I've seen the history of BH Properties when it started in the 90s to where it is now. That focus on basis is so crucial because whether you hold something for a year and a day, five years, or 10 years, you start to look at these products and the churn you have of tenants, capital improvements, and these expenses, they really start to build up over long-term horizon. Those returns start to kind of saturate themselves. So long as you are looking through a basis yeah, and you're looking through that lens, it's going to help carry you through those cycles and those ups and downs and those ongoing expenses that can start eating away when rents, rent growth could go up and start going down. At least you can have a long-term rent so long as you go to that basis. I know it sounds like a simple thing. We always talk about buying things right, but more often than not, you, you see acquisitions out there and you kind of scratch your head wondering, you know, what was that? It was just, they had forced to put capital out there or something, right? Something makes you scratch your head. Like really that basis is so crucial. Well, it's important that you touch on the basis because what that also implies to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're not market timers. You're not trying to say, hey, we should enter a deal or enter the market based on these circumstances. It's good that you have your capital ready and willing. But what it means too, I think, is that you're able to assess value first and foremost, with the fundamentals of the real estate, not what your capital stack may require per se, but as, hey, this is an opportunity, regardless of what cycle we may be in, because it achieves a certain basis that we feel comfortable. And then looking, you know, how you modeled your investments over the decades, right? You're able to take comfort in the fact that we don't have a necessarily short life cycle. We have a long-term horizon with this asset and clearly being grounded in a basis makes... I think the asset a little bit more palatable where others may not enter right now because going back to that bid-ass gap, the question we commonly have as brokers is trying to figure out the market liquidity for a certain product yet. But what we've heard at the end of last year was, hey, you know, we're going to take a pause. We, we think the market has a lot more correction ahead of it. Well, it's not like there's going to be a news headline that says, hey, today was the last day of the correction. The market's going to start to go in a different direction. So when there's good opportunities, what we're trying to see is, are you still taking advantage or looking for those opportunities, regardless of where we may lie right now mm -hmm. in the in the market? Yeah, and you know that that that's the truth. You know, we we have been actively buying through the last cycle and the upswing, right? When things are moving up, we were still buying because looking at through basis or looking at a different angle, right? Covered land plays, I'd say, you know, five to seven years ago, weren't as popular as they were in the last two three years, right? Yeah. Because of just supply constraints of land, especially here on the West Coast, it's getting limited. You can't really build over the water. You could, it's just not cost feasible, <laughs> right? So those land constraints really bring the ideas of covered land plates, right? But regardless, we were buying throughout the cycles, not just through the creative angles if you look at properties where maybe something's out to market and you have the masses looking at it from one direction. You kind of look at it from another angle, the creative avenue, and you're just kind of like, huh, you know, like this actually has more value to it and kind of stepping away from the herd, coming back from another angle, you see more enhanced value. But that basis, again, we're always based buyer and those properties we even bought during the last cycle where it's competing properties around them that were picked up at a higher basis when it was a roll to market rents, which by the way, if you're following that strategy, you know, heading into COVID, you'd kind of be screwed, right? Because yes. you don't know where rents can be two to three years from now. Sure. But that's why the vacancy is nicer. 
uh, for that taking that lease up risk on a lower basis. Regardless, those properties we have even through last cycle are still faring very well right now because of that low basis, right? You're still in there, so and you still have quality, right? Right. So you're still weathering that storm. Now, as we move into transition of market level, now with a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, in theory, there is still more opportunities. That bid ask spread still makes it difficult, mm-hmm. right? It's still not perfectly easy, but we're still in a better position to acquire assets. Because like we're doing before, we're still looking for basis and basis is even better right now. And with the lending environment being tough for most, right. it's for our favorite. You know, we can sit it on the books, put it on the balance sheet for a while until it gets better, or you know, have something to stabilize and it's something we might just exit. What type of feedback in to that? What type of feedback are you receiving from sellers that maybe have an outsized ask compared to the market? How are you bridging that gap? Or do you even take time to consider a deal that on the surface looks good, but maybe the ask is just too far out of bounds. Yeah. A lot of that ask too, I think is driven where landlords and ownership groups are stuck either in where the interest rates were mm-hmm. pre high trying to recapture. Yes. Yeah. Dollars. Or, or this viewpoint that we're going to get back to low interest rate. Environment. Right. My opinion of it all is that this entire last cycle called the last decade is interest rates as low as they were, probably the lowest we'll see in our lifetime, I think. That's not actually healthy. Right. I mean, the GFC, they're fighting everything could to to raise rates, cut rates, you know, manipulate these markets. But when you get so low, you don't have much room to play with anymore. That's a scary position. Yeah. So you have to think about as the Fed and the economy, they don't want to be beat back in that position. Spread it out over the long term. We got to be honest with ourselves. The interest rate environment we're at right now is actually a, a healthier number where it was historically. Yeah. And I think as an owner buying in this environment, so long as you're at a price that's going to adjust to it, it's going to probably be in a better off place when you think about the systematic and unsystematic risks that exist in any economy, knowing that the Fed is still going to probably play with things in the future, right? They always have that. That's not going away as much as we like it or not. So those things are major impacts. And the sellers probably, a lot of them think that, oh, well, you know, interest rates are going to go back down again. So I kind of want to bake that on my price. Maybe I can meet in the middle and my thought that at least interest rates will go down. So you might get a good deal. So I'm going to keep my price here. Um, the reality is on both ends, the bid ask spread right now, I think is primarily being driven by those interest rates. It's the belief that they're going to get back down to low interest rates. Yeah. And the bid is saying, whether it's going back or not, my lender is not allowing me to do that. Exactly. Right? It's not penciling there. Right. No, it's interesting you say that, right? The, the expectation that we're going to return back to the market that we're accustomed to where low interest rate environments. I do agree. I, I think this is overall good for assets as well as for valuations in the sense that to your point, you need to understand the risk model or a little bit more of the risk of each asset and take that into consideration as opposed to just assuming, hey, I'm borrowing at such a low, low cost that, you know, this spread makes sense for me. So as, as we start to look more into, into the future, we touched on office, we understand a little bit of retail, what's a market or maybe a product type that maybe hasn't gone mainstream yet. That is something that you guys are kind of circling or observing. Maybe it's like some type of alternative use. One I, one I can speak to maybe last year was. There's a large interest coming from the cannabis retail sector. Mm-hmm. That took shape at the problem there was fundamentals of high rent. High, to your point, high basis. Maybe that's not necessarily the best example, but you're starting to see new trends and new concepts emerge. Is there anything 
on your radar right now, similar to an alternative investment that you guys are kind of keeping a, an eye out on? You know, it, it, it kind of, yeah, I, I think it, it goes back to what we were talking about, those projects that have higher and better uses, right? You look at the history and you're like, oh, wow, there, there was a time when this property was was better suited for, you know, whether it was a restaurant, yeah. but somehow became an office now, right? Getting creative with these. I think other things too is the amenities. I think amenities go great for everything. Well, truthfully, multifamily. Well, maybe industrial, I don't know, you know, probably not <laughs> as much the amenity, right? Right. But there are creative angles for looking at that. And I think that's more of a frontier path development route when you look in those strategies. But um, that amenity base and that importance angles, for example, let's say, Things we're looking at, which I think a lot of the groups are doing too, but let's say, let's let's go to shopping centers, for example, retail, food halls, right? Food halls are a huge driver. Food halls bring, I like to call them the, the new anchor, right? For the longest time, anchors were your big box. They would oftentimes, you know, you would have like a Sears, for example, and they get a rent that yeah. would a buck a year, right? Because the real purpose was to drive traffic with these centers. Nowadays, I'm seeing things that I call anchors that look different. They're more creative, whether it's these food halls that get a lot of bodies in there, it gets people in there, right. keeps, them, keeps them in these places for a while too. That lends itself to office as well. Right. And it, it creates that economy between retail and office and how they thrive together. And then for shopping centers as well, those food halls, and I should say too, it's, it's also making sure you're getting in bed with the right operators, food halls. You don't want to turn to like a food court, right? Because <laughs> I know it, there's terms for these things, but I think you know what I mean when you go from a food hall to a food court, right? Because a lot of these food halls are making experience, right? And experience yeah, is a key word that translates not just with food halls, but you look at centers and you see, you know, the art, like we had around LA in different pocket, pockets of where it was like those wings, right? Or these cool art landscapes that are put in center that people want to come for Instagram, right? And they want to take photos of them. I don't know, but that Instagram photo, people and everyone will be like, oh, where was that? I want to get this shot, you know, where it could be a Banksy art type or street art thing then can make centers cool or locations cool and attractions and using social media that's kind of driving things and indirectly you're getting posts at places that's getting out to the wider public and that's drawing people there um kind of looking at things like that those things and including pop-ups right a lot of times pop-ups lenders don't like those right sure those people who need debt but the truth is a lot of these pop-ups have cult followings whether it's Sneakers are selling or some artists, right, or exhibition. But really, as a landlord, you got to look at it and think, really, what this is doing, it's driving bodies in your center mm-hmm. and places that are vacant, and you're trying to lease up the rest of the center, and you have net leases, right? You're putting a burden here, right? right. At least when you have a lot of this filled up here, not only are you still having traffic, there are attractions, but it's making it easier to lease up the rest of the spaces in these centers, too. So those are all things that are helping to drive traffic. And no matter what their size is, what we used to think of anchors as these big spaces, I look at these creative and interesting experiences, regardless of the size of the footprint they take, as actually very important drivers. Don, that's a fresh take because when you speak to experiential real estate, primarily that was focused on anchor grocery type space. But to hear you speak specifically to these pop-up tenants, it almost makes me think, operationally speaking, our owners such as yourself now going to intentionally have 10,000 or so feet left for or 10% of vacancy to accommodate these pop-up in-demand type tenants to drive traffic because, you know, social media does have that influence. And that individual that goes to 
whatever center to post the mural and say where they got their inform or gadgets or whatever they acquired from, that may have some value, especially markets like Los Angeles or San Diego to an extent too, where there's a lot of tourism, a lot of, you know, high frequency visits. So that's an interesting model to consider based on the type of asset you have is how are you going to integrate the consumer and have the consumer, ex or excuse me, the consumer have that experience there at the center. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen deals where we're looking at it and you talk with leasing brokers, investment sale brokers, or principals of the assets even. And, you know, admittedly, they will be like, hey, yeah, this is our trouble space though here, right? Whether it's 5,000 or 10,000 square feet, it was a some sort of anchor in the past. Now we kind of look at it and it's just like, oh, great, you know, this is where we're going to have that experience, you know, yeah. because those are tend to be the pockets. Maybe it's a corner of a center that didn't have a lot of flow, right. right? Of foot traffic, right? But these experience things are going to bring people not just through the center of these points, but it's going to bring in the center, generally speaking. So a lot of those places that have been deemed, quote unquote, the trouble spot to them, yeah. that experience is actually experiential re real retail is putting a big impact on these centers overall. So it's put a complete 180 our thoughts in those so yeah to your point you know when you have those gaps preserve them for that or look at it through those lens maybe it doesn't work all the time but it's a it's an additional tool to keep in your belt to use to when you look at these well and also too i think you know the obligation of the landlord in terms of leasing commissions or ti work to enhance that space can be mitigated right if you have the right turnout from a customer that is maybe attending that space now because it's a pop-up kitchen for a couple months and a renowned chef is there, or maybe to your point, it's sneakers. Yeah. Something along those lines that's you know, drawing the customer in and allowing them to take advantage of, of that space and obviously highlight the importance of the center. I think, you know, it's almost, it's almost like a net zero cost, right? Because you're not passing it on to the tenant who's then passing it on to the customer. You're just utilizing that space to say, Hey, we're going to put a pop-up here to attract, you know, this new shut that's coming into town for only two or three months. Mm -hmm. And that kind of creates that, that atmosphere, that environment. Yeah. And you, you got to think too, in this, as a retailer, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they're thinking as well too, well, who, who am I creating a partnership when I'm going to be a tenant in one of their centers? Am I going to be with a group who doesn't have certainty of being around forever or who's going to continue to not just invest capital, but you know, do things like these pop-ups or experiential yeah. retail just for the sake of keeping this alive and helping your business go, right? Because uh, revenue-driven foot traffic to centers helps your tenants, yeah. and your tenants are going to help you as a landlord. And nowadays, you look at this also translates to office as well, too, right? For example, downtown LA, office. Downtown LA has been crushed really hard right now, <laughs> like many other markets, yeah. San Francisco and others. But the truth is, you look at downtown LA, a lot of tenants are thinking themselves, well, okay, if I'm going to do a $150 foot build out and, you know, you do your build out, tenant then gets their their portion of the reimbursement back from the landlord. Is that landlord going to be around? Am, am I going to be able to get that money because bankruptcies or these falling apart later, yeah. right? When you think about it, downtown LA, as many buildings they have, without mentioning names, there's about four ownership groups, four buildings there that can really foster new growth for tenants and invest that capital into them for them to grow the business, expand into, and actually expect, you know, that they're going to do a TI and get their money back. Right. Right. So tenants are thinking about this now too. Where do I want to be? Do I want to partner with a group who's not going to be here long-term? Someone 
who's not well capitalized just because it's a good location, right? That's a big portion of it, right? Location. However, they're starting to think now, who do I want to partner with? Interesting. So the conversation is now becoming more layered. It's not just transactional in terms of meeting the needs of rent and TIs in terms from a lender and, you know, call it cash flow standpoint. Is there an interview that's taken place where you're the landlord and tenant are almost shared business plans and speaking to, hey, here's how we think we can optimize your your business, or here's what we're going to invest in long-term to keep your your customer base or whatever your business serves in good tech. So it seems like now, whether we like it or not, social media or the influence of it is playing a little bit more of a role into advertising and soliciting new customers into a space, and especially in areas like downtown LA, where, you know, you, how many visitors do you have annually coming there with all the different attractions? So I, I think that's kind of a unique point to touch on, right, is how do you utilize the experience through whether it's social media to grab attention for the customer for your asset and being that, I guess, now a part of the value creation. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, it's, that's a really good, didn't even think of that, Tom. Yeah, well, that's, that's I think, truth, truthfully, I think that's the duty of the landlord. The landlord's duty really isn't to invest in your business to tell you how to run yeah. your business, sure. right? But what you can do as a landlord is foster that traffic, that revenue-driving traffic uh, for retail, for example, mm -hmm. that will help them grow because that, in turn, helps you out, too. And oftentimes, a lot of these retailers are willing to do things on you know, the base building front too, or courtyard areas to help improve that. And so when you were talking about that dialogue with tenants, yeah, absolutely have that dialogue with them because number one, you need to go out there and sell them too, right? If you have a broken center and you're in a market, like it could be downtown LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. I mean, so many places in the West Coast we can talk about that have been beaten up. They really want to hear that story, but you also want to give it to them also that story to be like, yeah, trust us. Let's be part of this team here, right? You want to be at this center. This is what we're doing. But that story also has been a broken record for a lot of retailers too, right? They're going to want to see that attraction. So uh, whereas you have things, spec suites and office sites, not like you're doing spec suites and retail, right. at least when it comes to base buildings, properties, sprucing them up, you know, working to make it more foot traffic, pedestrian friendly, where they can actually see that is actually happening. It's no longer a broken record. They're doing things. That's probably the best thing you can do. That Those actions speak louder than words. Yeah, that's... That's an excellent point on just the communication, collaboration, and understanding of your tenant is, and more importantly, making sure that there's some type of partnership in the term of the lease to make sure that one, they're, they're staying in business and they're thriving and how that serves the landlord. So it's almost like a better partnership, a better relationship needs to happen than not saying past years were adversarial, but I think the commitment requires a little bit more dialogue and understanding of the approach. I think lastly, Tom, let's kind of speak more. What would you, for listeners out there, as you're approaching deals, fundamentally speaking, what are your core measurements that you focus on, regardless of asset type? You touched on basis earlier, but how do you ensure you're getting a good basis relative to the assets asking price? So instead of just basis, what, what would be a, an important point to touch on when looking at a opportunity in this market. You're gonna you're gonna hate that I'm gonna say this right now, but yeah, let's hear it. Basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
No, it's basis. Huh? It always starts with basis. Yeah. Like, I always start with basis. It's something that, you know, I Maybe let's walk that back a bit. Basis meaning if the property is being offered for, let's say, $100 a foot, how do you arrive at truly a comfortable basis for you in that deal? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's many different factors, right? So we say the traditional route, which is $100 a foot. Maybe that is a, just right out the gates. That's a great deal. Right. You just pounce, jump on it, take it down as quick as you can. You know, it's not uncommon for us to do it. 10 days or less closes. We've done some in under 48 hours. I prefer not doing those, but we'll, we'll yeah. do it, right? Yeah. So we've done and we'll do it for the right deal. That being said, that basis, you're going to look at your market rents, right? How comfortable you are that you can get there. And oftentimes it goes back to what we we're saying about those improvements you're making property to walk the walk instead of talk the talk about this broken record of prior landlords doing or not doing some of the property. You go in there, you do that. See what is that capital cost? What's it going to take? What's that marketing plan? Years ago, the idea of merchandising plans, the social media marketing, yeah. all these aspects, they really kind of sat in the realm of outdoor lifestyle centers or destination centers. But the reality is I'm seeing now this is across the spectrum of all different shopping centers, small strip centers, all the way again back to those lifestyle because to have a competitive advantage, you need to use all that technology and tools. If we're not learning things, what are we doing, right? So let me ask you this. How much does the current use tenants, brochure, what type of you know product they're selling influence your basis? For example, if you have a brochure that has a short-term lease, and you're in your measurement, it's below market. But maybe you study the the grocery marketplace in a one two mile radius and see that you know what there's really there's only sixty million dollars in quote unquote sales in that area. So maybe this isn't a grocery. Maybe it's a gym or an alternative use. Use has a different rent, right? Where does that, what does that, ha what happens then if you have a transformational space, like a grocery to a gym, how does that impact your basis then? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I think it goes back to one thing I see that is kind of, it's not a problem because it's no one's fault, but a lot of people focus on one product type, right? I can't tell you how many times mm. in the past when I talk with friends of mine on the office side. And they would always say, oh, gosh, you know, I heard retail is doing really bad. You know, they're getting, <laughs> they're, they're getting beat up. And, you know, yeah, there, there was some, you know, black eyes out there, but that was because of the big box and what's happened. But if you looked at the shadow anchor, the unanchored retail strip centers, yeah, I mean, there's the, as far as I'm concerned, Uber's not doing haircuts and car rides right now. So you're still going to have that, right? <laughs> or doing manicures, pedicures, right? There's a lot of stuff for retail. And then now it's funny, you look in retrospect, the retail guys are like, oh God, like office, they're just so bad. You know, yeah. that place is dead, right? So the conversation always changes. So to go back to the question, I think coming from our background now where we can look at different product types, right? They're selling it oftentimes, unfortunately too, it's there's still market that can cap rate, even though it's short term, which I don't understand why, because you have to look at the basis. Yeah. But because of our experience with different backgrounds and different product types and just interesting that there's so many unique things that exist in one product type and you wonder well, how they do it in this product type too right right and you realize it's because it's just a, a different experience so a grocer right maybe there's no feasibility for a grocer in this market it's oversaturated the potential is a gym then right but even if if retail's all out of the picture right then there's other things too our relationships are huge and that we can transfer relations we have from the office side whether it's a medical office call centers and then vice versa that we can make these transitions happen in both ways for the longest time, you had office buildings that were just 100% office all the way through. Now you're seeing that 
you know, maybe they don't have a amenities in the area. Well, we're going to cut off a bottom floor or second floor. We're going to put more retail there. Other markets too are even asking that, hey, let's put let's put retail on the top, which sounds so crazy. Yeah, it does. But if you go through downtown LA, yeah, you know, good point. I think you're going to feel a bit better going to elevate, go to a cool outdoor center on the roof versus being on the bottom right now in this market, which you know there's there's a lot of issues on that bottom floor that exist now. So kind of taking bits and pieces and our relationships that we have. Uh, with different product types and the tenant reps and the tenants themselves, that has a lot of cross paths and it's helped a lot. So I think those are things you look at the lenses when you say those grocers, for example, there's other uses out there for sure. Well, it's really exciting as an agent to hear the different approaches, the creativity you're taking to apply your value. I think what we're really experiencing right now is that transformation for investors to apply more discernment in terms of how to better utilize space, how to recapture the customer. So in essence, we're growing a bit. Yeah. And then with that growth allows opportunity. We're not sitting here crying about, we haven't said the I word until just now. We're not talking about interest rates. We're speaking to fundamentals and how to better modernize the center, the office building, or the, you know, the underlying land. And I think as we continue to go forward, that's the approach it's going to take. The modeling of the last decade or so is probably a little archaic. So this is where the creativity, yeah. the innovators come to the forefront to capitalize, obviously, on acquisitions. So with that, we appreciate Tom taking the time to come down here from L.A. Not too sunny of a San Diego day, but, you know. Hey, you never had a twist my from coming to San Diego. No, we appreciate it. And uh, I really appreciate, obviously, the the depth you went into in assessing value and approaches you're taking. So, My pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it.